Today the passage that we read is a very well-known passage. It's the parable of the sower. And this is the first parable of many parables that our Lord taught. And the objective of this parable is to teach us a lesson on how to bear fruit for the kingdom of heaven. How to bear fruit for the kingdom of heaven. And we all know this parable very well. Our Lord even explained it to the disciples. The earth symbolizes the heart of man. And some hearts receive the word in different ways. But our Lord spoke this parable to certain people who had certain experience with farming and a certain understanding of farming. And for us to understand a little bit more about the significance of the lesson or the teachings in this parable, we have to take a second to study farming techniques in that region back then. Back then they practiced something called dry farming. So because in Israel the climate was very dry for most of the year and it was very arid, and they would receive rain usually in the late fall, winter months, and the rest of the year there would be no rain. And so they were very reliant on whatever would fall from heaven. And they had no sprinkler systems, they had no sophisticated irrigation systems, they had no aqueducts, so they were completely reliant only on rainwater. Which meant that the farmer's livelihood and the livelihood of his family was completely in God's hands. They had to completely rely on God in order for them to survive. Let's take a moment to consider that. Because as modern people, we often forget to thank God for the money that gets deposited in our bank accounts automatically every so often. And we take it for granted that God permitted that we receive a paycheck or that we hold a job. We even take it for granted that God may have orchestrated or permitted events in such a way so that we can make a living. And someone may even go as far as thinking very highly of themselves and of their achievements and of the effort they've put in to achieve whatever career they have and not thank God for it and not realize that just like the farmer, they could toil and work hard and put the effort in, but then there's no reward to reap. There's no reward for the labor. And so the first lesson for us is that God blesses the labor and He gives the increase. And this is something that those farmers knew very well. If there was no rain, they were going to go hungry. And so any fruit that the land bore was a big deal. And this is a valuable lesson to us in being content. And if we are not content, we are not going to bear fruit. If we are not thankful, if we are not content, we will never have joy in our lives. And we will never bear fruit for the kingdom of heaven. 
So the enduring characteristic that we as Christians must have to bear fruit is to be grateful, is to be content. Discontentment, or not being grateful, is actually a thorn or a stone in the soil. And it's a thorn or, or stone that must be removed. And it has to be replaced with gratitude. Because like we said, if there is no, if there is no gratitude, there is no joy. And there is no fruit. Now it's very easy to be content and grateful when things are going your way. But if my expectations, if my plans are frustrated, then things change very quickly. I grow discontent. I grow unhappy. And I start to tell God, you know what God, you don't know what you're doing. Take a back seat. Let me take over. Let me manage my life as I see fit. As I understand. Because I know exactly what I need. And I know all the variables. And I understand how life works. And I understand the whole system of this universe. So let me take over and you take a back seat. We oftentimes want God to spectate our lives when things are not going our way. But that is actually the very moment that we need to practice being content. That is actually the opportunity we need to use to learn how to rely on God. Sometimes God allows for detours in our life and for disappointment so that we can plant the seed of being content and relying on Him. There's very compelling science and literature around gratitude. There was a psychologist from the University of UC Davis named Robert A. Emmons, and he conducted a study on being grateful. And the results were actually astounding. And they concluded that emotional and physical well-being is boosted by being grateful, by being able to say thank you, by being able to maintain a gratitude journal. They found that practicing gratitude boosted emotional and physical well-being. And one may say, well, okay, emotional I understand, but how physical? After all, when we're thankful, we block toxic emotions. We're not resentful. We're not bitter. We don't have regret. We don't envy. But how does it help me physically? Well, they found that being grateful even impacts a person's biochemistry. It impacts them physiologically. And here are the highlights. Here are some highlights of what they found in the study. And I encourage you to go look this up. And they've even written books about this. But some of the things that they found was that keeping a gratitude diary for two weeks produced sustained reductions in perceived stress by 28% and depression by 16% in healthcare practitioners. This is the science of gratitude. This is done in a secular setting, not done in a religious setting. Gratitude was related to 23% lower levels of stress hormones. Practicing gratitude led to a 7% reduction in biomarkers of inflammation in patients 
with congestive heart failure. Diary fat, dietary fat intake was reduced by as much as 25%. This is actually my favorite one because I know we are always struggling to stay in shape. And sometimes all it takes is to spend some time being grateful and maintaining a gratitude journal along with that time we spend on the treadmill or in the gym. Gratitude was related to a 10% improvement in sleep quality in patients with chronic pain. So it would seem that all along the church had the right idea because the church begins every single service with the prayer of thanksgiving. Anytime we're at church and we begin a service, the first thing we do is we thank God. Then we ask for mercy and then we let our supplications be made known. Now back to the parable. There's an actually interesting relationship between the earth, the seed, man's heart, and the Word of God. In Genesis 1.11 we read, And God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind upon the earth. And it was so. What this tells us is that the earth and the seed are made for each other. They are designed for each other. There's a designed attraction there. The earth is there to embrace the seed, and the seed is there to be embraced by the earth and to bear fruit. And similarly, our heart is designed for God's Word. In Hebrews 10.16, and St. Paul is actually quoting Jeremiah, it's written, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. So the heart of man has a purpose. And its purpose is to have the Word of God implanted in it. The heart's purpose is to embrace the Word of God. Our heart is just like the soil. It's expecting the seed. If there is no seed, if there is no Word of God, then there will be no fruit. No fruit unto eternal life. So the purpose of my heart then is for Christ and His Word, His teachings, His Scripture to dwell in it. And so we have to realign the purpose of our heart then. The point is that by trying to implant the Word of God in our hearts and by trying to spend time pondering and meditating and studying the Word of God and filling our hearts with it, we reach something that's quite beautiful. And that is oneness of mind with God. And who doesn't want to have oneness of mind with God? So, as I practice gratitude, I also have to practice and struggle with studying the Word of God. And if keeping a gratitude journal offers so many benefits like we saw, how much more then will spending time with God's Word be? 
So we have to memorize God's word. We have to study it. We have to ponder it. We have to repeat God's word to ourselves. We have to ask, what is the personal message in God's word for me? And this is what St. Mary did. And if this is something that St. Mary did in the past, then it's probably a good idea for us to copy her example. In the Gospel of St. Luke, it's mentioned twice where it's written, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So St. Mary pondered the events, the words uttered to her by the angels in her heart. And this is what we're supposed to do as well. We have to ponder upon God's Word. Finally, we have to pursue purity of heart. Being grateful and studying the Word of God has one objective, and that is purifying the heart. This is breaking up that hardened soil. This is the removing of the thorns. This is the removing of the stones. This is purity of heart. And this has to be our goal all the time. Abba Moses taught, we shall always direct our actions and thoughts straight towards the attainment of purity of heart. For if it be not constantly fixed before our eyes, it will not only make all our toils vain and useless and force them to be endured to no purpose and without any reward, but it will also excite all kinds of thoughts opposed to one another. What Abba Moses is saying is that we have to take purity of heart as the anchor of our minds because our minds tend to move back and forth and rove and go all over the place. But he says if we use purity of heart as our objective, we're anchoring our mind. This should be our goal. So then I have to ask myself in my daily life, is this action I'm about to take serving purity of heart? Are these words that I'm about to utter going to serve my purity of heart? Is this decision going to foster purity of heart? Will this job affect my purity of heart? This has to be our objective all the time. And why? Well, because the mind is like a ticketing system. It takes the next thing that it crosses paths with. It takes the next thing in line. And if it's not guarded, anything that it crosses paths with will have an impact, will leave an imprint on it, and will leave an imprint on the heart. It will impact the heart. Even the good things that the church teaches us to do, such as fasting and prayer, won't be useful to us if we don't have purity of heart as our objective. Abba Moses again says, For the gain from fasting will not balance the loss from anger, nor is the profit from reading so great as the harm which results from despising a brother. Those things which are of secondary importance, such as fastings, vigils, withdrawal from the world, meditation on scripture, 
we ought to practice with a view to our main object, i.e. purity of heart. So fasting and prayer are not the things that we should be focusing on as our goal. I don't fast for the sake of fasting. I fast for the sake of purity of heart. I don't pray for the sake of prayer so that I can say, look at the prayer rule that my Father of Confession has given me, how great I must be now as a human being. No, the prayer rule that my Father of Confession has given me was given to me for one reason, to foster purity of heart. Fasting is for that as well. Fasting is for purity of heart. It's not to say, look, I can abstain from food for seven days on end. I'm a holy man. No. Fasting is meant to cultivate in our hearts that purity of heart. So we have to keep the mind preoccupied with God. We have to be thankful. We have to read scripture. And then finally, we have to meditate on the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. Abba Moses again, and so daily and hourly turning up the ground of our heart with the gospel plow, i.e. the constant recollection of the Lord's cross, we shall manage to stamp out or eliminate from our hearts the lairs of noxious beasts and the lurking places of poisonous serpents. Thinking on the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior breaks up that hardened heart and softens it. It removes the roots. It removes the stones so that the heart can become pure, so that the heart can bear fruit. Anyone will find it very hard to ignore the passions of our Lord and Savior. Any person will find it very hard to walk away from meditating on the crucifix of our Lord and Savior unchanged. So let's attend to the words that we pray in church during certain fractions. This is what the church is trying to do. The church is trying to portray our Lord's passions so that our heart can be softened and become pure. We pray, for my sake, O my Master, you accepted shame and blasphemy and consented to contempt, slander, threats, and smiting. We also pray, he ascended the cross naked that he might clothe us with the garment of his righteousness. My sins, O my God, are the thorns that that pierce your holy head. Portray his wounds before you and hope in him when the enemy rages against you. Grant me, O my Savior, to consider your suffering my treasure. The church wants us to take the sufferings of our Lord and Savior as our treasure. Because through them he enriches us. When we treasure his suffering in our hearts, that's where we begin to see a real change. 
That's when our behavior begins to change. That's when that heart that was hardened for so long becomes softer. It becomes a heart of flesh. Treasuring our Lord's passions in our heart will for sure change us and for sure give us fruit unto eternal life. So in summary, to bear fruit 60-fold, 30-fold, 100-fold, whatever it may be, whatever the farmer could get, whatever the sower could get, we have to first practice gratitude, keeping a gratitude journal. We have to study the Word of God to achieve oneness of mind with God. And we have to pursue purity of heart. And the best way to pursue purity of heart is to contemplate on the sufferings of our Lord and Savior. May our Lord and Savior give us the blessing of bearing fruit unto eternal life and bearing fruit of repentance. Glory be to the Holy Trinity. Amen.